ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello and welcome to Intelligent Design the Future. On this podcast, we're going to close out our review of The Language of Science and Faith by Francis Collins and Carl Giberson by discussing how contradictions, irony, and appeals to authority permeate the book. The title of Chapter 1 in Carl Giberson and Francis Collins' new book, The Language of Science and Faith, is Do I Have to Believe in Evolution? The very title of the chapter implies that affirmative belief in evolution is an indisputable matter for Christians. If you doubt that they are so adamant, bear in mind that it was Guyberson himself who wrote on in a CNN.com op-ed that, quote, Jesus would believe in evolution and so should you, unquote. They're welcome to believe in evolution, of course, but should they present their case in such a non-inclusive way? But before delving further into the rhetorical strategies used in the language of science and faith, let's revisit some of the main scientific evidence and arguments they cite in this chapter for why you should believe in evolution. And keep in mind that these are all lines of evidence that we've discussed in recent ID the Future podcasts. First, they repeatedly appealed to a singular pseudogene, which they call broken DNA, which is shared by humans and other primates. But we saw this turn out to be a weak argument since we're continually finding new function for pseudogenes. Then we talked about how they cited feathers evolving from scales as evidence for the power of random mutation. However, we saw that this argument has been abandoned by evolutionary biologists because feathers are essentially too different from scales for them to have evolved in such a fashion. Then we discussed how Giberson and Collins claimed that eyes evolved from light-sensitive pigments, but we learned that this is not a feasible step-by-step Darwinian evolutionary pathway, and in fact there is no Darwinian explanation for the complex biochemical and anatomical features of the eye. Next, we learned how they cited humans sharing common ancestry with Neanderthals as allegedly bolstering common ancestry on a bigger scale. But we saw that many consider humans and Neanderthals to be so similar that they are sub-races of the same species, and thus this does not provide evidence for macroevolution. Finally, we saw that they claimed that macroevolution is simply repeated rounds of microevolution, but they provided no real empirical evidence to back up this claim other than bald assertions and misguided appeals to intelligently designed technological evolution. Giberson and Collins apparently want readers to believe that the answer to the question posed in the title of their chapter 1, Do I Have to Believe in Evolution?, is an unequivocal yes. But as we've seen, the evidence cited in this chapter was unimpressive. Their arguments were outdated and in some cases consisted of little more than bald assertions that are contradicted by the evidence. They're welcome to believe in neo-Darwinian evolution if that's what they want to do. We can certainly agree to disagree and I have no problems with them making the case for their viewpoint. But again, they have the right to believe whatever they wish. But do they believe that you have the right to believe whatever you wish? In fact, there's another quality to the language of science and faith that is much more disconcerting. The troubling part about the language of science and faith is the level of rhetoric that Guyberson and Collins use while trying to lead readers to conclude that apparently they have to believe in evolution. The book is full of appeals to authority and attacks upon the character and competence of Darwin-doubting scientists. It is into this most unfortunate territory that I now cautiously step. Theistic evolutionists love to make appeals to authority. It seems that Guyberson and Collins have followed this rhetorical strategy. Thus, in chapter one of The Language of Science and Faith, we find comments like, almost all Christian biologists accept evolution. In most large gatherings of scientists, you would not even find one person who rejects the theory of evolution. Christians should take no comfort in the misplaced hope that the scientific community is gradually abandoning the theory of evolution, or the validity of scientific ideas is best addressed by the leading experts. 
Just in case you didn't get the message, they even go so far as to claim that, quote, virtually all geneticists consider that the evidence proves common ancestry with a level of certainty comparable to the evidence that the Earth goes around the sun, unquote. Get it? The not-so-subtle message is that if you doubt universal common ancestry, then you're no better than a geocentrist. I get the sense that Guyberson and Collins don't want people thinking for themselves on topics like evolution, but simply want them to capitulate to those they deem the quote-unquote leading experts. I wasn't sure if the book actually intended this message until I read Guyberson's recent response to William Dembski, where Guyberson makes it very clear that he doesn't want people thinking for themselves on topics like evolution. Guyberson writes, quote, To suggest that this data can be handed over to non-specialists so they can make up their own minds is to profoundly misunderstand the nature of science, unquote. Stop and think for a moment about what Professor Guyberson just wrote. Dr. Guyberson doesn't think the average person should be allowed to, quote, make up their own minds on evolution. Such a mindset seems profoundly dangerous and wrong in many ways, because it demands intellectual conformity from all. What's most ironic, however, is that Guyberson and Collins later defeat their own appeals to authority. They write that, quote, scientific truth is not decided by the number of names on a list or who wins the debate or who convinces the most people. It's based on the evidence, unquote. Well, here I completely agree. But if they really believe that statement and the evidence is really all that matters, then why do they feel the need to persistently rely on appeals to authority to convince the readers of their book? I think that Guy Rusin and Collins want to have their cake and eat it too. On the one hand, they want readers to imbibe a not-so-subtle message that readers ought to capitulate to the quote-unquote consensus because it accepts Darwinian evolution. But realizing that's a fallacious and dangerous argument, on the other hand, they want to be able to say that they still made the correct point that scientific truth is based on the evidence, not the number of names which support a theory. They're completely right about the latter point, but they seem to be sending out contradictory message and not giving straight answers to these questions. After all, the subtitle of their book is supposedly Straight Answers to Genuine Questions. But there are other contradictions in the language of science and faith that are even more troubling. What's most unfortunate about the language of science and faith is not the book's questionable and self-contradictory appeals to authority, nor is it the book's apparent attempt to dissuade people from thinking for themselves on evolution. Rather, it's how Guyberson and Collins try to win the hearts and minds of their readers by using the rhetorical strategy of attacking the competence and character of Darwin-doubting scientists. Let's start with their attacks on the competence of PhD scientists who have bravely signed a list dissenting from neo-Darwinian evolution. In one instance, Guyberson and Collins write, quote, The dissent from Darwin list includes philosophers, physicists, mathematicians, and academics from other fields. Many of them never took even a single course in biology beyond high school, unquote. Well, this is a bald assertion, and there's no evidence at all that it ought to be taken seriously. And how do they know that their claim is true? Their intended point, of course, is that these PhD scientists are supposedly not qualified to express real dissent from Darwinian evolution. In fact, they make this argument explicit, stating, quote, Many of the scientists listed are not trained in biology, and so are not in a position to evaluate the central theory of the field, unquote. What's ironic, and again contradictory, about their argument is that the co-author of The Language of Science and Faith, Carl Guyberson, himself is not trained in biology, and even admits that, quote, he took his last biology course in 1975, unquote. Now, I'm not raising this point to attack Guyberson's knowledge or his credentials, and in fact, I don't think that Dr. Guyberson is unqualified in any way to comment on evolution simply because he's not a formally trained biologist. In fact, Guyberson, who's the first author of The Language of Science and Faith, must feel the same way, since he just wrote this book, which spends many pages evaluating evolution. Guyberson's admission that he lacks the same qualifications of those whose qualifications he attacks does not exactly make for a compelling argument. 
Given that he's written extensively about evolution, his attack on the competence of Darwin-doubting scientists seems, frankly, downright hypocritical. Guyberson and Collins have also misconstrued the purpose of the Descent from Darwinism list. As noted, they write that, quote, scientific truth is not decided by the number of names on a list, or who wins a debate, or convinces the most people. It's based on the evidence, unquote. Again, I could not agree more. But the Descent from Darwin list was never intended to demonstrate that neo-Darwinian evolution is false simply because X number of scientists happen to disagree with neo-Darwinism. What the list does demonstrate is that one cannot dismiss scientific dissent from neo-Darwinism simply by appeals to authority. The list shows that there is a critical mass of credible scientific dissent from neo-Darwinism that needs to be taken seriously. By overstating the purpose of the dissent from Darwinism list, Guyberson and Collins hope they can convince the reader to dismiss it. That's why they have to overstate the purpose of the list. When properly understood, the scientific dissent from Darwinism list shows that there is a critical mass of credible scientists who do dissent from Darwinian evolution and need to be taken seriously. But that's exactly what Collins and Guyberson don't want their readers to do. This is why Guyberson and Collins so commonly appeal to authority in their book. They want readers to think that there's no credible scientific dissent, but the dissent from Darwinism list shows that isn't true. But their most unpleasant jab at Darwin-doubting scientists has yet to come. They write, quote, The evangelical literature is so filled with misrepresentations and outdated information about evolution that even a lot of research might not lead an honest seeker to the truth, unquote. To be sure, there have been some Christians who challenged evolution with bad arguments, but by making broad-brush attacks upon the entire body of Christians who would argue against neo-Darwinism, Guyberson and Collins would apparently want to paint all Christians who doubt neo-Darwinism in a negative light. That unfortunate rhetorical tactic aside, again we see the irony in their statement. If their claim is true, then Guyberson and Collins' book defeats its own argument, since as we've seen, the language of science and faith itself uses outdated arguments, for example, claiming that feathers evolved from scales. The rhetorical strategy of Guyberson and Collins is now becoming clearer. They want to plant seeds of doubt in the minds of readers, not through compelling discussions of the evidence, but by attacking the trustworthiness and competence of skeptics of neo-Darwinian evolution. Aside from the fact that this implied argument commits the genetic fallacy, Guyberson and Collins haven't done a very good job of making the argument. Every attempt they make to plant doubt in the reader's mind is refuted by their own book. For one, Guyberson and Collins make repeated appeals to authority, but then admit that all that matters is the scientific evidence. For two, Guyberson and Collins attack the qualifications of non-biologist scientists who doubt Darwinian evolution. But Guyberson himself, a co-author of the book, is a non-biologist who lacks formal training in biology and evolution. And finally, for three, Guyberson and Collins attack the, quote, misrepresentations and outdated information, unquote, among writings that challenge evolution. But their own book is far from mistake-free and uses some unambiguously outdated arguments and now abandoned arguments about evolution. Now, I don't want listeners to misunderstand me. I'm not making these arguments to try to get you to distrust Guyberson and Collins. They're both very smart, qualified, and informed scientists, and they make arguments worth considering. Read their books, evaluate their arguments, check out the responses, and decide for yourself if they make a persuasive case. I'm not attacking Guyberson and Collins using the same fallacious arguments that they make against those who doubt Darwinian evolution. Thus, you should also realize that there are a lot of smart, qualified, and informed scientists who do doubt neo-Darwinian evolution, and the fact that some of those scientific critics may happen to be evangelicals, quote-unquote, does not mean that therefore those responses are, quote, filled with misrepresentations and outdated information about evolution, unquote. Diverson and Collins are making arguments designed to stifle your own self-investigation, not encourage it. 
So what's the main point here? It's this. Whenever Guyberson and Collins stop talking about the evidence and start appealing to authority, attacking Darwin skeptics personally, and asking you to stop thinking for yourself, it's time to become skeptical. If the evidence is so clearly on their side, why do they feel the need to do this? I'm Casey Luskin, and I hope you've enjoyed this six-part series giving a scientific review of the new book by Darwinian theistic evolutionists Francis Collins and Carl Guyberson, The Language of Science and Faith. Thanks for listening. Did you know that ID the Future reaches tens of thousands of listeners every month with the evidence of intelligent design? We need your financial support to keep ID the Future going and growing our listener base. If you value this content, please consider a gift right now. Go to idthefuture.com and click on the big donate button near the top right. That's idthefuture.com. Your donation is an investment in science, culture, and truth. That's idthefuture.com. This has been Casey Luskin. Thanks so much for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.